Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. In a rapidly changing culture, many struggle with talk about faith. Jonathan Merritt knows this frustration well. After moving from the Bible Belt to New York City, he discovered that the sacred terms he used to describe his spiritual life didn't connect as they had in the past. This launched him into an exploration of an increasing American reluctance to talk about faith, and the data he uncovered revealed a quiet crisis affecting millions. In his groundbreaking new book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them, Jonathan revives ancient expressions through incisive cultural commentary, vulnerable personal narratives, and surprising biblical insights. Jonathan is one of America's most prolific religion and culture writers, an award-winning contributor for The Atlantic. He's published thousands of articles in outlets such as USA Today, BuzzFeed, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. His book, Learning to Speak Gone from Scratch, is a great read. We had a great conversation about it. I give you Jonathan Merritt. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. I, I've read your writing. I, I like it. And it's and you've written a great book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, How Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. You quote Thornton Wilder, who's one of, uh, I, I'm a big fan of Thornton Wilder, and he has this great quote, something to the effect that uh, we that we need, uh, the, the, the revival in religion will be a rhetorical one, new persuasive words for defaced and degraded ones. Hmm. Now you quote that in a critical section of the book, where you you're kind of you look at the ways that sacred language today, sacred God talk, spiritual talk, is sort of falling on hard times. And you say one kind of strategy that traditionalists or conservatives do is kind of protect the language; they build a fortress around it. The other strategy, kind of exemplified by that Thornton Wilder quote and by Rob Bell in in your colloquial or anecdotal example is is where Rob Bell sort of stops using God uh, on his road tours and, and talks about spirituality and the vibe and the energy. And you 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 look at avoidance as just a, as big of a problem as the sort of moat protection strategy. And you're 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 seeking a kind of different way forward, right? Yeah. So there are a few steps maybe to help people get to that place, which is one, um Sacred words are vanishing. They've been in decline in the English-speaking world since at least the 1950s and in massive decline. So words like grace and mercy, uh, compassion, kindness words have all decreased by upwards of 50% since the mid-20th century. In addition to that, I conducted a survey for this book that showed that only 7% of Americans and only 13% of practicing Christians in America say that they have a spiritual or religious conversation on a once-a-week basis. And so the conclusion there is that the vocabulary of faith, the language of faith is dying. And when we look at linguistics, we find that this is, this is a, a common occurrence, that languages will often die. Many languages will die. 
uh, every single year. And the language of faith is one of those that is now an endangered species, at least in uh, America. And so what I look at then, and you've kind of brought this up, is some of these approaches is once you once you see that a language is dying and you you decide you want to save it, that the language of faith matters to you, you don't want to just sort of walk away altogether from spirituality, how do you respond? And there are a number of ways that you can respond. Three that I point out in the book. Uh, one is really, really bad. Uh, one is not scalable. So it's it's less bad, but it's just not workable in the end. And then the, the third approach that I name uh, transformation, which I'm sort of arguing for in the book, is really the only way to revive an ailing language. And this is not something new. I mean, this is not, you're not pulling up a kind of novel approach. You offer ample evidence in the book from the biblical tradition and the history of the Christian and Jewish tradition, how this happens on the ground. Like words are always being reinvested with new meanings, you know, the, the religious language and how it is used changes, you know, when it's being used in a kind of Latin, the Latin world of St. Augustine, it, you know, it looks different when you take it to Ireland, you know, with people mm-hmm. like St. Patrick. I mean, this happens throughout it's throughout religious history. So this isn't something that my sense is you're, you're arguing, this isn't something that should make people panic. This isn't the first time this has happened. Yeah. So we see this, we see this first, uh, I would start with just talking about linguistics and I write a lot about linguistics in this book. Um, every linguist will tell you that languages either change or die. There's no third option. Uh, there are no exceptions to this. If a language doesn't change, a language dies. In other words, if you look at a language, if it is not moving toward evolution, it is moving toward extinction. Those are kind of the two roads. And that does make a lot of people nervous because when you talk about the language of faith, people say, yeah, well, well, but the word grace means what I think it should mean and nothing else. And, and to reconsider whether the way that I conceive of this term and the idea that it corresponds to is helpful, good, best, uh, makes people feel uncertain. They sort of have known these words to mean certain things. But as I show in the book, uh, religious words in the Christian faith have always uh, been evolving. They've always been changing in meaning. They've changed. Uh, if you look at these w- your words usage uh, throughout uh, biblical composition, the earliest Old Testament writings to the latest New Testament writings, you'll find that there are conceptions of words that sort of rise and fall, and you have new conceptions arising. And if you look then uh, post-biblical history and even throughout Christian history, you find that words have evolved in understanding over time, and that that's okay, that that is what these words do. That's what words in general do. Now, it doesn't mean that red can become blue, right? It doesn't mean that just a word can mean anything you want it to mean, that it's always kind of connected to a central idea, but that it grows and develops over time. C.S. Lewis wrote a great book called Studies in Words, where he talks about this, and he says it's kind of like a tree, that you have that central trunk, but over time, 
new meanings have to sprout like branches. And so what I'm encouraging people to do in this book is, is to embrace a process of, of engaging with the language of faith, of dreaming and imagining and critiquing what these words have meant, do mean, and should mean for us so that new life can spring forth in the vocabulary of faith. Yeah. At one point you say that a lot of conservative Protestants are 1950s Merriam-Webster's dictionary people. And it sounds like you want them, or you think it's a healthier approach to be more like an Oxford English dictionary person, right? You go open the OED and you get a big history and etymology of words. And it's surprising sometimes where a word starts or where we think it starts and how we use it today. I would, I would even say, I would say it would be, we have to, we have to realize that all dictionaries have shaped us in some way that we have grown up, um, you know, the ancients didn't have dictionaries. So the notion that, uh, that every word has a fixed universal meaning for all time that can be easily referenced with the click of a button or the flip of a page, that is a, that's a very uh, modern impulse. That's not an ancient impulse. That's a, a modern conception of words and meaning. It's not an ancient conception of words and meaning. Uh, words uh, have always been formed within communities, and the meanings have been the meanings that have been given to them by those uh, communities. And so even when you think about etymology, it's not that we're going back to previous meanings, that it's like, oh, let's just go back to what this word originally meant and we've somehow corrupted it. It's that there are a range of ways to understand words, layers and layers of meaning, meaning that, uh, that, that uh, we need to think about that we haven't even conceived of yet. And so what I'm really calling for is, yes, that people would, would understand what these words have meant. Yes, that people would understand what these words mean, but also that we would dream together about new and more helpful ways to understand the way that these words should be given life in, in the 21st century as well. So, so the Oxford Dictionary takes us back to sort of the earliest known usage, but in many cases, the earliest known usage is only part of the way that we should understand that word. It's only revealing a kind of understanding. It's the truth, but not the whole truth, so help me God. So what would it look like if we think about and dream about new ways of, of understanding these, these words? That uh, I talk about this a lot in the book, that the, that the ancient rabbis would get together and they would wrestle with meanings of words and birth new ways of understanding. And, and they would say, hey, what, what would it look like if we thought of this word this way? And, and, and that, that process of imagining uh, midrash, uh, that would actually bring forth new ways of conceiving of things. And that, that is sort of the, the, the framework for driving a language forward, for keeping it alive, if you will. Yeah, Albert Richel, the great 19th century German liberal Protestant, he, he said that, you know, oftentimes the way people come up with Christian thought is they, they try to like look at the Bible first. Then after looking at what the Bible says on any given idea that they're wrestling with, then they look at the history of interpretation, church history, and then they come up with some sort of systemic, systematic formulation. You know, here's what you know, we think. He said, actually, you should look at history of interpretation first, because that's all you're doing when you're reading the Bible anyway. <laughs> you're looking mm -hmm. at how your tribe has interpreted it, right? Mm -hmm. And you're saying that this, you're trying to bring this a little more to the foreground, right? That that's not a problem. The rabbi, the rabbinic tradition kind of embraces that, that we're, that we're in an interpreting tradition. And to be self-conscious of that isn't a bad thing, to realize that 
we're part of an ongoing conversation, right? That 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 invests new meaning. Otherwise, the the, the words die. Yeah, and there is and there is part of this is sort of this dualistic uh, post enlightenment. Uh, way of thinking that divides everything into halves, right? So it's like there's a good way and a bad way, a right way and a wrong way. And I would say there are better ways and worse ways, uh, that there's a spectrum. And on that spectrum, there are many things about words that are, that are helpful and true, but they are incomplete. One of the examples I use in the book, and I have a whole chapter on the word sin, but I talk about the biblical conception of sin and how it, how it changed from sin as rule breaking or lawlessness to sin as a weight, which is sort of the the uh, later Old Testament writings, to sin as a debt. So Jesus and Paul sort of that's their dominant conception. And today you might talk about sin as a problem or sin as a a, a sickness. Uh, there there are multiple ways of talking about sin, and it's not that one is right and the others are wrong. But that oftentimes each of these ways of conceiving of something is getting at the truth. It's revealing a part of what sin means, what sin looks like, but it's not the whole of our conception. And so uh, that's really what I'm trying to help people understand is not to stamp everything with wrong, 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 right, but to say, you know, maybe that the way that I've understood this or conceived of this isn't getting at the whole of what God may want me to experience through this word. You're someone who has experienced adult conversion of sorts, right? Which a lot of people don't experience that. A lot of people stay in similar tribes a lot a, during for a huge portion of their lives, right? But you grew up self-described. You went to Liberty University, right? Which our president says is the number two school right behind Penn, the best school, two Corinthians. I mean, his, the first address he gave at Liberty was just fascinating. But you went to Liberty. You were an Ann Coulter reading kind of conservative. You go to an evangelical Southern Baptist seminary, wind up at, was it Candler School of Theology? You went yeah. to Candler. You go from this kind of confessional Southern Baptist place to a more contextual, diverse place. I wonder how the being somebody who's changed their mind, you know, there's this great, I don't know if they still do it, but they used to have this column in the Christian century, how I changed my mind and famous Yoder, Carl Bartz and all these famous, the Niebuhr brothers had written it. I mean, you're someone that's been very self-conscious and have talked about changing your mind. I'm wondering how being somebody whose mind and heart have have changed in ways you're very aware of has shaped a project like this. Well, I I think part of that is that we have lost what it means to be a Protestant. You know, the Protestant Reformation, the heart of it was that we are reformed and always reforming. And we've lost that second clause. It's just reformed, right? So we we have these kind of ideas of God and faith and spirituality that are sort of for many of us oftentimes locked in time. They're they're stuck in liquid amber. They're sort of um, 15th, 16th, 17th century notions of God and faith and spirituality. And I think God is always showing up and saying, behold, I'm doing a new thing, right? That, that there are, it doesn't mean that the previous way was wrong. It just means it was getting at it, but it never got to it. It never got the complete of it, the whole of it, all of it. And so that means that to 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 be a, a a Christian means to be open to a God who is always doing a new thing. 
And to be open to that God means to always be open to changing your mind. But it also is a result of my education. You know, you can't, you, you, you can't really uh, sort of lock your views in, in place if you are a student of Christian history, because every era of Christian history asserted things with certainty that we would now reject as wrongheaded. And so the, the to, it takes, I think, a, a certain amount of, of uh, historicity and humility to say Christians have always asserted things and they've gotten them wrong. I'm asserting things that I'm wrong about that I don't even realize yet that I'm wrong about. And it's always looking for those things that need to be reformed in, in its own framework, its own thinking, its own theology. Many people do not do that. You know, I have a lot of evangelical friends who I say, man, it must be great that you figured everything out by the time you graduated seminary. Like, I wish I, I had figured it all out by the time I was 26. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't. I'm 36, and I still haven't figured it out. And I will figure out soon uh, the things even now that are not quite right. So it's being open to those things. I think that's what it means to be Protestant. I think that's what it means to be Christian. I think that's what it means to be humble and to have an eye uh, with history in mind, in view. In the book, you you tell this story that's kind of funny, but also awful, that your friend who you used to play like Zelda with, and he was your buddy and you used to sneak the Playboy channel late at night. He, this childhood friend, he like, his girlfriend was like, look, He's not cool enough for you to hang out with. And so he broke up with you. He said, hey, my girlfriend said, I got to choose. And he cut you loose. And you tell some other childhood stories that are lonely stories. And you even talk about the dealing with chronic pain and, and how that was a lonely experience. Mm-hmm. And, and I wonder, and you've also been somebody who, in your writing for, in your journalistic writing for RNS, you're often someone that, is tough to categorize because one day you'll critique say evangelicals for their stance on LGBT issues. Then you'll critique a, a progressives for as, assuming that all evangelicals are homophobic, even ones that are traditionalists. And do you, that seems like a lonely place. Is loneliness something that has characterized your, you as a person? Cause it seems like in different ways you occupy lonely spaces. You know, I think, I think, yes, first of all, yes. Um, But related even to this, I think in part, it's because if you're someone to kind of connect back to your last question, if you're someone in, in, in this religious space who is willing to change your mind and who does so often, uh, you're always going to find yourself in a lonely place because uh, the status quo corner is crowded. And I've never been a person who's really comfortable there. Now, what's interesting is, what's interesting is, is that I've, I've often found myself out in front saying that certain things uh, would happen. I mean, I, I wrote years and years ago that some of the trends that affected mainline denominations, which were not due merely to theological liberalism, would catch up to evangelicals. Now we're seeing that. Evangelical decline uh, mirrors that uh, of the mainlines. And people are looking around thinking, well, what was that about? Uh, I've often said that some of this toxic masculinity would catch up to the church. And of course, it, uh, it has. Uh, I've said for a long time that uh, to merely um, 
marginalize uh, people who have different views on LGBT relationships and marriage would would be a hard position to sustain because the church uh, statistically was moving uh, in a different direction. And of course, now we know that the majority of young Christians have uh, a different view uh, on those issues. And so some, sometimes it's it is be having enough courage, I think, to name reality uh, as you see it. And that has been a, a, a lonely place. Uh, now, some of what you're talking about is, I might say, and I talk a lot about this in the book, I tell these deeply personal stories of loneliness. And those are not professional stories of loneliness, but I think the two are connected because I don't believe that the stories that we live are accidental or incidental. And I think it very well might be that the stories of loneliness I tell from childhood and from adolescence and from young adulthood were plow lines. They were experiences that were in some way providential, that were preparing me for these times of professional loneliness. And I think that's why I often tell those stories together. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. Yeah. One of the, my favorite sections of the book is you talk about pain and, and this experience you had with chronic pain and carpal tunnel syndrome and just, and, and, and the limitations it placed on you. And you talk about how some traditions sort of minimize pain or just, or, or paper over it and others sort of valorize it. and. You want something to, I mean, pain, you look at pain as, as, as this thing that is and, and, and is awful and yet can be redemptive and it can even be a teacher, right? That this is something that we often wouldn't choose these lessons, but then we realize we couldn't live without them. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. I mean, what I say in that, in that chapter, so I come down, I came down with a chronic pain disorder uh, that started in my hands and worked its way up my arms and back and is kind of all over my whole body. And uh, that was one of those words. You know, the first half of the book talks about all of the trends 
and and my and my story of kind of encountering these trends, moving from Atlanta to New York City, and having not no longer being able to speak God, no longer being able to converse, and that crisis, and then how we get beyond that. That's the first half. The second half is you know all these essays on words, and the wor- the pain chapter is a tough chapter. It was a tough chapter to write because. Some of these words I chose, and some of them, as I say, chose me, and pain chose me. I would never have walked into that. I would never have wanted to discover the word pain. But that's a word I think we all have to discover, because now in America, more than 100 million people say they have a struggle with chronic pain, a nagging pain that won't go away. And yet, if you go on to Amazon and you search for a theology of, you'll find a theology of almost everything today. You will not find a theology of pain. And that's that's a problem. That that's a word that I think we have to breathe some new life into that old word. We have to rediscover that word for our current situation, our current cultural moment. And so that's what I talk about in that is some people say pain's a good thing, embrace it. The extreme forms you'll find them self-flagellating or um or uh nailing themselves to the cross in the desert. You know, those are the extreme forms. Neo-monasticism even will sort of say embrace pain and suffering. You find that's where you find God truly. The other side which you're going to find in word of faith movements and prosperity gospel and even uh, sort of tacit affirmations in uh, mainstream evangelicalism says pain is a bad thing. God doesn't want you to be in pain. God wants to make you healthy and happy, wants your life sort of in working order. And both of those are not real helpful for somebody who has chronic pain because the pain doesn't go away. So where is God? Why doesn't God love me? Do I need more faith? Do I need less sin? And the other side says, I don't want to embrace this. It's too much for me to bear. And that leaves people with pain really trying to understand what faith has to say about that word. It's a word I think that we need to speak from scratch. Yeah, there's a Christian psychiatrist, Frank Lake, who's, I mean, he's a blessed memory now. He died in the early 80s, but he has this 1,000-page tome called Clinical Theology. We're trying to integrate psychiatry and, and theology. And he says in the beginning that if we think of ourselves as of our humanity as as a container that ought to have something good in it and inevitably we we open up the cupboard and the cupboard looks bare and that's a problem but he said you know if we think of that's the metaphor is wrong we're not meant to be containers but channels for divine energy itself and so if you look at it that way getting the bottom knocked out of your humanity ruins you as a bucket but is really salutary for being a vessel (laughs) Mm -hmm. and 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 that that kind of i mean it seems in that chapter you bring that up that this that that bottom getting knocked out of your humanity opens you up to something that, again, you're not calling evil good, uh, but it, it, it's there is a good that you couldn't get without the pain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that what I um, I would say I would say uh, that there is a way of understanding pain that says that can assert its badness while at the same time being open to the lessons that pain wants to teach us. Carl Jung, uh, you know, said, and I quote him in the book, uh, that if we kill pain before we learn the lessons it has come to teach us, then we kill ourselves alongside it. And I think that that's a true uh, statement. There are a lot of people who just search for the first way to numb out of pain, to get rid of pain. And, and and there's no criticism of that, by the way. Pain is an awful thing. And yet there's something to be learned uh, with pain so long as we have it, that we should be paying attention to the lessons that it's trying to teach us. It's interesting. We're, it, our president got 81% 
uh, 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 has 81%, got 81% of the evangelical vote, more than Romney, more than George H.W. Bush. And that support does not seem to diminish. He is one of the least spiritually literate, maybe just in general literate, (laughs) although he has the best words. I mean, it's funny when you hear him say something like that. It's his own weird way of, of, of maybe subconsciously admitting weakness. Like I've got, I, I have the best words. I mean, he's just, you know, when he sounds barely able to string to get like words out, but, but, but what, I mean, do you look at this as, how do you, as a religionary make sense of this? I mean, are these, is this a huge failure of grammar or <laughs> all the Christian subjects that, that, that this support continues to just increase? Well, I think that what you are seeing is a massive trend, uh, and it's been an ongoing trend for decades, um, which is the politicization of religious language. And I talk about that uh, at some length in the book. It's not something that's just on the left or the right. It, it's hard, it, it, it strikes us, I think, in a more abrupt way in uh, a 24-hour news cycle with social media where if the president says something, uses religious language, it's amplified in a way it wouldn't have necessarily been amplified if Ronald Reagan did it or uh, Bill Clinton did it. Um, and so we were, it's, it's, it's amplified and it becomes larger than life. Additionally, it, it becomes a little more off-putting when the person speaking those religious words, misusing them or abusing them, uh, is not believably religious, you know. So, in the case of someone like uh, George W. Bush, it was at least believable that he was as religious as he was. I mean, most people believe he thought he was God's man for that time. Uh, he had a genuine conversion experience. Nobody was questioning that. And with Donald Trump, it's obviously not not nearly as believable. It seems very opportunistic. Uh, when I was doing the research for this book, when we found that so many people didn't speak God with regularity, we decided to ask those who spoke God infrequently, why not? Why do you not speak God? Why do you not have spiritual or religious conversations? What we found was, was that a large proportion of those people said it was because religious language had become too politicized, that it now just put them off, that these words were sort of tainted by their usage. And so I think that in many ways, uh, this kind of language can be effective for reaching a certain part of the electorate. But for many of us, it's a net negative. It actually comes back to hurt uh, American religious communities more than it helps them. Yeah, I, I th- my last, I, th- I think it was my last guest on the podcast, Michelle Margolis, who just wrote this book, From Politics to Pews. And she's in political science at Penn's. It's a massively researched book, but she shows that like it's not just that religion shapes politics. Now politics is shaping religion. So if you're like leaving traditional religious observance in late adolescence, you know, at young adulthood, as many do, when you get to the point where you're considering settling down, usually like late 20s or early 30s, which many people consider, reconsider religious traditions, if your partisan identity has at the same time hardened, and if your partisan identity is Republican, you're much more likely to go back to religious observance. If it's Democrat, whether you're part of a vibrant religious tradition or not, you're more inclined not to for these. Now, again, there are outlying cases, 
but it's scary the degree to which that trend is predictable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in the in the research that we did for the book, we found that uh, conservatives were more likely than than political liberals to use religious language or to say that they have spiritual or religious conversations. But what was interesting is the people who are most comfortable with it are moderates, people in the middle, people who don't identify with either, that they actually allow room for nuance. So I think there are a lot of conservatives who, even though they support uh, the president, are actually put off by the way that that uh, politicians uh, in their own movement uh, use religious language for political ends as well. So it's not like all conservatives are bad, or if you support Donald Trump, like you're contributing to this. I think it's a little more nuanced than that. You you talk about in the book how that, I remember I read this, one of my favorite books on the Psalms by Walter Brueggemann, Theology of the Psalms, and he says there's three kinds of Psalms. There's sort of the orientation Psalms. Hey, the law is great. God's great. If you if you if you just read the Torah, everything will be hunky dory. The disorientation Psalms, you know, I want to, you know, God, please let us bash our enemies' babies against the rock. Where are you? And then the reorientation Psalms, you know, Psalm forty. He set my feet upon a rock. You know, he made my foot. He took me out of the miry pit. And, and you sort of you use that or, or order, you know, disorder, reorder. You have several windows into it where how this is how we learn to speak God again and we'll learn to keep the language alive that you have to go through this transition where the words have some stability, but then, you know, you run up against problems of context and existential things and cultural things. There needs to be some disorientation, right? And then there's an integrating reorientation. But you say that oftentimes conservatives get stuck on step one, right? And liberals get stuck on step two. So it's either hey, we can't get disoriented or everything is going to be chaotic, you know, dogs and cats sleeping together. Or it's you have progressives who sort of valorize disorientation. Like if you're not always disoriented, you're not really sophisticated or cosmopolitan. Yeah, I think that I think that the that the if you talk about like, uh, you know, disorientation uh, or orientation, disorientation, reorientation, it's reorientation that often gets overlooked. So many people have it. They, they, there's the orientation is sort of the way they've always known it to be. And uh, to pretend that it's not the way that it always has been or the way you've always understood it is jarring. It does feel sort of destabilizing. And so a lot of people want to protect that sense of order, that system. Uh, they don't want to change their minds because to change their minds would mean to change. And that's not something, you know, the conservative uh, position is to conserve to keep things the way they are, to resist change. Progressive is about change, right? It's tearing apart the system. It's pushing forward. Uh, But they often get stuck, particularly postmodern progressives, with just sort of tearing down the system. And they sort of are wind up sitting in a pile of rubble wondering who can know, right? They're cynics and skeptics. And neither of those approaches is complete, right? You have to move through all three phases, which means once that we've deconstructed and been honest about the failings of the system, uh, been honest about ways in which it hasn't served us well, we have to have courage to reconstruct to build it back up again. Yeah, yeah, I, I think yeah, and I think that 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 position where you're holding those intention again is often a lonely one, right? Because you get shot at from both sides, right? That that people. People that that try to hold these things in tension often provoke anxiety from all sides, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that is that is true, and I think there's also a lot of of uh, tribalism that goes into it, right? I mean, if you're in uh, a community that values the orientation, 
then your value is increased by your ability to protect the institution, to protect the system. If you are in that kind of progressive world that values this disorientation, the tearing down, then your value is increased by your ability to dismantle, right? To critique. Um, Very few people exist in the third space. And that is a very lonely space because uh, folks, folks will feel like you're not with them if they're conservative or liberal, right? That you're, you're, well, you're not protecting the system. And then the, the, the folks in the disorientation phase will get mad at you for trying to rebuild because they'll think, but there's still all this work to be done. There's still lament, there's still grief. And you're trying to rebuild, you're trying to move them beyond it and they're stuck there, right? So they'll say, don't tell me I need to forgive. Don't tell me we need to move beyond this. And, uh, and, and disorientation is important. Right there's there's a whole a whole uh, uh, there's a gift that people in that phase give us uh, and in some ways it may be that that all three phases I don't know if you've ever looked at like spiral dynamics like uh, the reorientation folks wouldn't exist without disorientation and the disorientation folks wouldn't exist without orientation and in some ways we all sort of need each other and we can appreciate the people who have come before us even if they haven't been able to get where we have come. Uh, because we wouldn't exist without them. Uh, maybe that's maybe that helps us to to value our brothers and sisters who are in different phases without somehow getting uh, in our minds that we are better than them or that we we're higher than them or that we have a more evolved consciousness than them. But we can appreciate them for being part of the whole transformative process. Yeah, this is where someone like Jonathan Haidt's work can be helpful, right? The moral psychologist, we're seeing how these, how the sort of moral, you know, taste buds, as he calls them, how these intuitions develop, and they they bind and they blind, right? And 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 how and seeing their utility, even with the people that are really different than you, can help you. Yeah, it can help defuse the pressure cooker a little bit, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think that's I think that's true. Yeah, you are a New Yorker and, and a son of the South who who really seems at home now in New York and you live in Brooklyn. I mean, you've written a lot about, or some at least, about Tim Keller. My sense is this is someone you know, you, you've gotten to know a little bit. He's someone that, that tends to get shot at on all sides. I mean, recently was sort of invited to speak at Princeton and was offered an, an award it was going to be given an award but then because of his issue certain issues in his denomination he was allowed to speak but not given in the award because he was seen as anti-feminist and non-inclusive and and yet you you know you have people on the right that think that keller is sort of too permissive and is eroding evangelical norms i mean he's a he he's an interesting figure today on the evangelical landscape particularly situated in new york i mean i'm just interested in in what your interactions with him have been like you know we've we we're not great friends i don't have a cell phone number we end up in the same room together uh on occasion i uh i had a the privilege i think it was last year of moderating a discussion debate between him and uh professor lilla at columbia uh for veritas there and so i have um great respect for him. He's obviously going to be very, very conservative, reformed Calvinist. uh, And theologically, we would disagree on a lot. But he's someone who's winsome and thoughtful. 
So he's he's he doesn't hold those views uh, ignorantly. He's d- always done his homework, and so I respect that. He is a a formidable thinker um, among reformed American evangelicals. He's also kind of culturally progressive and well read enough that. You know, uh, he makes space for women leaders in his church, and that kind of upsets some folks in his ranks. He's uh, very outspoken about believing in um, Darwinian evolution and 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 sort of the science's explanation for the the origins of life and the world. And uh, he's somebody who hasn't been captivated by this kind of Trumpian expression of evangelicalism. And so, in that sense, he's he's kind of a, a curious guy, I think, for a lot of people. But make no mistake, I mean, he is as evangelical and as Calvinist uh, as they come these days. And even though he has some of these subtle cultural nuances, he's still very much a conservative. I'm interested. You talk in the book a little about your own spiritual pilgrimage. And even in, you have one section where you talk about going to sort of more liturgical churches, saying a creed in a Lutheran chapel and, and, you know, growing up Southern Baptist, seeing creeds with some suspicion and then learning that they can be actually inclusive things. Where, where do you hang your hat now? Do you, are, are you a member of a particular congregation or do you, cons- yeah. do you self-identify with a, with a specific tradition now? I mean, I'm, I go to a church here called Trinity Grace Church in Tribeca and, um, I love it. It's a great church. It's kind of non-denominational Christian. It it would be like probably progressive evangelical, I would say. I don't know that they would use that word, either of those words. I don't know that they would use those words, but you know, it's a small-ish congregation and uh and I love it. And it is it is it is liturgical, but we also have a heavy emphasis on preaching too. How'd you wind up there? Uh, you know, I had friends who went there. I tried on some different churches when I got here, and it was just the one that I think fit me the most that I felt at home. And I mean, do do you wind up? I mean, is this a sort of? I wonder, is this a professional hazard? I mean, do you, as a religion writer, do you wind up like as a worshiper? Being, do you worship as a journalist? Do you? I mean, like, do you, do you wind up like having to sort out? Okay. I'm thinking about religion this way very often as I'm I'm a mainstream, you know, religion journalist. And I wonder how that affects life as an adherent, as a worshiper, somebody that's deeply involved in life of faith. Well, it doesn't it doesn't really matter for what I do because I'm not a reporter. I'm I'm a columnist, so I'm I'm paid to have a point of view. I'm paid and and in that sense it's actually really beneficial that I'm within these communities, I'm experiencing them, I am a believer. So I'm not coming anytime that I critique uh Christianity, uh it's done as someone on the inside, somebody who cares about it, somebody who deeply cares about church. Um, I think also, though, being at a liturgical church helps me to avoid the kind of critique that I do for my job because it's it has a rhythm to it. It's predictable. So it's not like you know somebody's pulling a rabbit out of the hat every Sunday and I'm having to kind of judge it. Uh, as to whether, as to where it's coming from, and how authentic it is, and whether it's manipulative, uh, the liturgy kind of keeps things going. It's just sort of like waking up and eating breakfast. You know, it's not something that you really. It's easy to stand outside of and critique. It, there's not that kind of a flair for creativity every week where you're kind of making it up. 
And uh, I think if I attended like a low church, evangelical, kind of a mega church environment, it would be that, right? Where you'd be like, well, that was weird. Why did they do communion that way? Why did they... Why did they do this that way? Why did they say this? Why did that person praying do it, say that? That didn't make any sense. Uh, instead, you have these kind of time-tested ancient uh, expressions of worship that uh, you're incorporating, and it, and it, and it keeps me from um, sort of disintegrating into a critic when I'm at church. You have this beautiful section in the end of the book where you talk about Erasmus and a poem, uh, this verse he wrote late in life, uh, it, it actually made me think of of, of Plato because you know Plato in the Phaedrus has this critique against writing, and one of the it's ironic though that he writes it in a written dialogue. But one of the reasons he, he likes dialogues as a writing style is they're more conversational. They're more you know they emphasize point of view as opposed to being more static. And you you have this great you quote this this verse where he says in the it all rose out of conversations a uh, conversation conversation within god uh in fact the conversation was god and so he's kind of almost eugene, eugene peterson paraphrasing sections of john 1 here and going on and, and you lament that that literary tradition has kind of transmuted it back into word right and you you like conversation more right well uh, i mean that sort of expresses what what uh, john was saying when john says in the beginning was the word um a word for us is kind of a static thing that's how we think about a word right there's a word a word has a definition a word has a meaning a word is fixed that's that's this kind of dictionary way of understanding uh, a word but um it's more the kind of word if I said, can I have a word with you? That's what that word means, that, that the word uh, logos in, in Greek is this ongoing conversation that involves a speaker and the audience. And it, it's, it's fluid and it's dynamic. And that's what John is getting at, that there is this divine conversation. And Jesus is both a part of that conversation and the conversation itself, and that we enter into that with God. And so Erasmus was one of the, the greatest translators of the Bible in Christian history. And so I really draw people into that to say that the journey of speaking God, what it means to speak God from scratch is to enter into an ongoing conversation, that it's not something that begins on page one of my book and ends when you close it, that it's that's something that is only beginning now, and that what I hope my book is is just a key that opens the door to a lifelong uh, conversation with God, a lifelong conversation that is God. Tim Keller wrote this book a couple of years ago called Reason for God. And I remember hearing him say that he kind of wrote a follow-up book because he realized that only he was writing this book that was sort of arguing for why belief in God was reasonable in, in sort of a late modern context, you know, like New York City. And yet it wasn't people that struggled with belief that were reading it, right? It was, it was Christians. I, I'm wondering... Did you have an ideal reader in mind when you're writing this book? Do do you, do you was there someone for whom you thought it was you know what there was an audience that it was targeted at? I mean, did that if so? Yeah, did that I think, change? I think at all? that like, you I think that you always have to write with an audience in mind. I always write to a specific person. Uh, I have a kind of a profile of this person that I work with, but it's a person who's pretty thoughtful, a Christian, somebody who cares about church in the Bible, but is also honest about the failings 
uh, of the church and misunderstandings and weaknesses of the way we interpret the scripture. Somebody who's probably politically centrist, maybe left-leaning. Uh, somebody who's a lot like me, who struggles with spiritual conversations, but also uh, feels there's a lot of life left in them, that there's power in having those conversations. Well, thanks for writing the book. And I think it it, it does, it's a, it's a deep and meaningful contribution to that ongoing conversation thanks for, Thank for writing it and for and for your broader writings appreciate it oh my my pleasure i appreciate you thanks for listening to give and take if you like what you heard please do a couple things for me they are so helpful if you do them share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say hey this is great check it out Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks again to Jonathan for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.